Hi there, I'm Chris Kessling and welcome to Defence Barrister, the podcast on understanding and surviving criminal trials, sentencing and appeals. As you'll have heard in the introduction to this series of podcasts, I'm going to take you on a journey through the criminal justice system in England and Wales, starting from arrest, detention and questioning at the police station, then through the trial process itself, all the way to the verdict, then on to how sentencing and appeals really work. Today, in this first episode, I'm going to start at the very beginning, and I'm going to start with a crime, or at least an allegation of a crime, involving three people in their early 20s and the beginning of the investigation process that will, over this series, take us into the courtroom and through our system of criminal justice. I'm going to use, where possible, real cases to bring to life various aspects of the court process, where they concern cases that I've dealt with for reasons of confidentiality, I'll change names, locations and other details. Many cases I'll refer to in the course of this podcast are already in the public domain, having already appeared in press or law reports in which case I'll refer to them specifically and I'll also post in the podcast notes links for you to read the cases for yourselves. But the crime and the surrounding facts of the crime that I'm going to deal with today are far from unique. In fact, it's typical of many such cases played out across the UK at any given time. So let's start with a young man called Aidan Johnson. We'll get to know more about him over the next few episodes, but for the moment... Let's focus on his Friday night out with his girlfriend Bianca and his good friend Connor. They all meet at about 7pm and their evening takes them for a bite to eat and then for drinks across several bars and pubs. Around 11pm, Aidan, Bianca and Connor go to a club. It's fair to say by this time that, as many people put it when describing, particularly in a courtroom, how they were affected by drink, they were merry but not drunk. In this case, that's probably a fair assessment for all of them, although Connor's certainly closer to drunkenness than the rest of them. They arrive shortly after 11pm, and the trouble starts at about 1am. Aidan's on the dance floor with Bianca, and Connor is on and off the dance floor, variously dancing, drinking, talking to friends he knows in the club, and doing his best to find a partner for the night. As they dance, Aidan notices another male about the same age with peroxide blonde hair dancing too close, in his view at least, to his girlfriend Bianca. The male moves away but then returns. He does this a number of times and then he reaches out and he actually grabs Bianca by the shoulder and turns her towards him. She resists him and turns away. But all of this, it's already frankly too much for Aidan, who tells the male with blonde hair in no uncertain terms to back off. What follows is replicated on many nights in many pubs and clubs across the world. Words are exchanged and pushing and shoving starts. Security only catch the tail end of it and are unable to see who started it or who in their views obviously to blame, decide to throw both Aidan and the other male whose name is Daniel Clark out of the club. So before long, Aidan and his opponent, blonde-haired Daniel, are outside and they're giving each other grief. They're not the only ones, since Aidan's girlfriend Bianca and his friend Connor have followed. Bianca, incensed by the injustice of it all, is screaming at Daniel. At the same time, Connor, who by this time is frankly hammered, is backing up Bianca and joining in with a few choice words. To add to the volume, two of Daniel's friends, Ethan and Finn, have also come outside. They start backing their side also, and each team of three start trading insults. Many of you will already have noticed that all the names I've used here are in alphabetical order. A, B and C are Aidan, Bianca and Connor, and D, E, F are Daniel and his friends Ethan and Finn. Hopefully it'll make it easier as we go on to remember these two sides. So back to the early hours of Saturday morning, and on the street outside the club where all the screaming blue murder. Aidan and Daniel then square up to each other. Anyone who has seen or experienced developing and fast-moving situations like this will know that there comes a time when they're likely to escalate in an instant, from threatening words and posturing to a full-on brawl, from the threat of violence to actual violence and injury. And this was no different. A fist was thrown, although by whom will become a hotly contested issue. Aidan and Daniel then go for each other, heads down and throwing punches. Their friends pile in, and within moments, six people, three on each side, 
at beating seven bells out of each other in the early hours of Saturday morning. But that's not the worst of it all. The worst of it happens moments later, when in the midst of it all, a broken bottle hits Daniel's face and opens his cheek up like a knife through butter. Who's responsible for this will become an even more hotly contested issue and will lead what started as a relatively mild disagreement in a nightclub all the way to the Crown Court to be considered at trial by a judge and jury. That's the beginning of the case, which will become known as R standing for Rex the King against Aidan Johnson. As soon as Daniel's face is cut open, the fighting stops. For one moment, the shock of it all makes everyone stare at him, as if in disbelief. Aidan then turns and runs, quickly followed by Bianca and also by the immediately sobered up Connor. They run and they run. Council CCTV cameras don't capture the fight, but they soon capture Aidan, Bianca and Connor running as a group down nearby streets. Each camera is able to capture their movements. Having heard screaming on the street, club security have seen the injured Daniel by this time and called 999 for an ambulance and the police. This means that police in the area have been notified that a serious incident has occurred, a bottle attack carried out by a group fitting the description of Aidan, Bianca and Connor, and the victim is in a very poor state. They're directed by the CCTV operators to the group's location. One, two, then three police cars arrive and Aidan, Bianca and Connor are arrested on suspicion of causing wounding with intent. Let's move on at this stage to the law and to the power of arrest. The main police power to arrest a suspect without a warrant is contained in Section 24 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. That act, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, commonly referred to as PACE, is a cornerstone piece of legislation and was brought in in the early 1980s to remove what had become real issues regarding what was known as verbling, i.e. fitting up a suspect with a false confession, and also other issues regarding police treatment of suspects. And PACE will feature a lot in this podcast. Section 24 allows a police officer to arrest a suspect without warrant if they are about to commit an offence, are committing an offence, or the police officer has reasonable grounds to suspect them to be about to commit an offence of committing one or to have committed one. This can relate to any offence, since there's no such thing as an offence you can arrest for and one you can't. Those are the available grounds for an arrest, but having a ground is not sufficient by itself, since as well as having a ground for the arrest, the police will also need to have reasonable grounds to believe the arrest is necessary. Reasons for making an arrest necessary are contained in section 24, subsection 5 of PACE. They are as follows, to get the suspect's name or address, or to prevent the suspect causing physical injury to themselves or someone else or suffering physical injury themselves, or causing loss or damage to property. To prevent them from committing an offence against public decency, but only where members of the public would be unable to avoid them. To prevent them from causing an unlawful obstruction of the highway. To protect a child or other vulnerable person from them. To allow the prompt and effective investigation of the offence or of the conduct of the person in question. And finally, to prevent the prosecution of any offence being hindered by their disappearance. For anyone used to dealing with criminal cases, they'll know that the most commonly used reason to justify why an arrest is necessary is for the prompt and effective investigation of the offence. There's no requirement to make an arrest lawful for the police to place their hand on a person's shoulder or to physically restrain them, although under section 117 of PACE they can use reasonable force if necessary to make an arrest, and under section 17 for more serious offences known as indictable offences they may enter premises to do so. The important part here is that the police need both to have and explain the ground and reason for the arrest. And the police can only depart from explaining this at the time when it's not possible to do so. For example, because the suspect is fighting, kicking and screaming, in which case it should be done to use the words of section 28 of PACE as soon as is reasonably practicable. So there must be a ground for the arrest and there must be a reason why that arrest is necessary. A few further words on this. Sometimes... Although there may be a ground of arrest, so 
where a police officer has reasonable grounds to suspect someone to have committed an offence, there may in fact be no reason to make that arrest necessary. Say, for example, if the crime that the police believe you are guilty of is stealing your neighbour's wheelie bins and the neighbour's called the police, they've given them video from one of their multiple security cameras, which they say proves it, the police would still be hard-pressed to say that your arrest was necessary for a prompt and effective investigation, or for any other reason. Instead, since they know your name and address, they could simply invite you to attend the police station for an interview at an agreed time in the future. An arrest simply would not be necessary in those circumstances. Before you send me messages saying that this is 2024 and the police would never be bothered by a wheelie bin theft, I totally get your point. It's simply an example to demonstrate that arrest is a significant interference with liberty and it's intended to be used only where there's both the ground and only where one or more of the prescribed pace reasons in section 24 exist. Let me say a bit more about the law here, because law is rarely simple, or rarely simple enough that there's only one section of one Act of Parliament, such as PACE, that sets out everything in a clear and straightforward way. If that was the case, then lawyers might be soon out of a job. Imagine. Well, the law on arrest is no different. So let me introduce you to something else about PACE, and that is the codes of practice. PACE itself contains the rules, if you like, and the codes of practice contain much of the procedure to carry those rules into effect, i.e. their practical application. Section 66 of PACE requires codes of practice to be issued on various aspects of arrest and detention. The relevant code of practice for arrest is Code G, or to give it its formal name, Code G, the Code of Practice for the Statutory Power of Arrest by Police Officers. What this really means is the procedure which should be followed for arrest without warrant under Section 24. It sets out essentially what I've already told you. But for those of you who wish to look into this further, it'll be worthwhile reading, I hope. But a far more detailed and perhaps the most important code of practice is Code C on the detention, treatment and questioning of suspects other than those related to terrorism in police custody. But we'll get onto that in a moment. Before we do, and before we leave the subject of arrest, it's worth mentioning another power of arrest without warrant that the police, and in fact any individual has, which is the power to arrest for an actual or anticipated breach of the peace. This is what's known as a common law power. The common law is, in essence, judge-made law that's been developed and modified by the courts over many years, as opposed to laws created by Parliament that are contained within Acts of Parliament such as PACE. I mentioned that a civilian can make an arrest for breach of the peace, but civilians can also or also have a statutory power of arrest, and that's afforded to them by Section 24A of PACE, although this is far from a perfect piece of legislation. Section 24A allows a civilian to arrest a person who's committed or is committing what is known as an indictable offence, or whom the civilian has reasonable grounds to believe has committed or is committing such an offence. So, well, how many people know what an indictable offence is, I'm not so sure, which is one reason why this power of arrest is far from perfect. We'll be looking at what an indictable offence is in a later episode in a lot more detail since how offences are classified affects the way they can be tried. But for now, indictable offences are either what are known as either-way offences, meaning they can be tried in either the magistrates or the Crown Court, such as theft, burglary, ABH, dangerous driving and drug supply. Or they can be indictable-only offences, which can only be tried in the Crown Court, such as murder, GBH and wounding with intent, rape and false imprisonment. A second requirement for a civilian arrest is that it must appear to the civilian making the arrest that it is, and here comes that favourite pace phrase again, not reasonably practicable for a police constable to make it. And that's not all. There's a third condition. And the third condition is that, as with police officers, as well as a ground for the arrest, there must be a reason for why that arrest is necessary. And in the case of civilian arrests, these are to prevent a suspect causing physical injury to themselves or to anyone else, suffering physical injury themselves, causing loss or damage to property, 
or escaping before a police constable can take over. No wonder you may think that the average person on the street or even a security guard in a shop may pause for thought before diving in to make an arrest. So, back to Waden, Bianca and Connor. The police have arrived. All three stop running, and then all three are arrested. On the information available to the police at the time, they're all part of a group who the police understand have been fighting with another group, one of whom has sustained a serious facial injury which they believe was caused by a bottle being used as a weapon. The police therefore have reasonable grounds to believe that the group have committed an offence and their arrest is necessary to allow the prompt and effective investigation of that offence or the conduct of the person or people in question. So the arresting officer says, I'm arresting you on suspicion of wounding with intent. Your arrest is necessary for a prompt and effective investigation of the offence. The police constable will then add what is known as the caution. We'll be looking at this in a bit. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. That police caution is something that can cause problems for suspects, and Aidan, Bianca and Connor are no exception to that. In many ways, the caution has three purposes. To inform a suspect that they're under no obligation to say anything. Then to tell them that if, however, they do say something, it can be used in evidence against them. And then to tell them that if they don't say anything, or they don't mention something when questioned, which they later rely on in court, that can also be used against them. As I mentioned, we'll look at this further in a moment, since... Where we're going now is moving from arrest to detention and questioning at the police station. Uh, and this is where code C of PACE comes into play. Probably the most commonly referred to of all the PACE codes of practice. So, to the police station. Once a suspect is arrested in a place other than a police station, section 30 of PACE requires them to be taken to a police station as soon as practicable after the arrest, unless it's necessary and reasonable to delay this to carry out further investigations immediately. It's also worth bearing in mind that instead of being taken to the police station under section 30A, an arrested person can be released with or without bail to go to the police station at a later date. But then only if the police consider this to be necessary and proportionate in the circumstances and the decision is authorised by a person known as a custody officer. In Aidan, Bianca and Connor's case, there's no reason to delay taking them to a police station or to release them. So they're all placed in separate police cars and they're taken to the police station where their detention is going to be authorised by the custody officer who's a police officer of at least the rank of sergeant. When Aidan, Bianca and Connor arrive at the police station, they should either be charged, released, or their detention should be authorised. The detention, treatment and questioning of suspects by police officers is governed by PACE Part 4, that's Section 34 onwards, Part 5, that's Section 53 onwards, and by PACE Code C. Code C applies to suspects in custody for the majority of offences, but not to those arrested for many terrorism offences or certain immigration and asylum matters. At the police station, the custody officer must decide if there is sufficient evidence to charge the suspect, that's section 37 pace, or if not, they must be released, with or without bail, unless, that is, the custody officer has reasonable grounds to believe that their detention is necessary to secure or preserve evidence relating to the offence they're under arrest for or to obtain such evidence by questioning them. So this is the basis on which Aidan, Bianca and Connor's detention is authorised. They're now in custody at the police station to be questioned about the offence by the police. Now that they are being held by the police, they have a number of rights which the custody officer must make them aware of, and these are also set out in Code C. The most recent version of Code C I'm referring to is from December 2023, so at the time of recording this podcast in January 2024, it's bang up to date. Code C is actually 96 pages long, but I hope to spare you some reading and get to the most important things that Code C says about striking a balance between effective criminal investigation and protecting the rights of the suspect. So what are the key provisions of Code C? They really come down to this. 
your right to consult privately with a solicitor and to obtain free independent legal advice, your right to have someone informed of your arrest, your qualified right to remain silent when interviewed. This is set out in the same terms given in the caution they received when arrested. We'll look at the right to silence in a moment. Your right to consult the PACE codes of practice, i.e. to see what your rights are as well as to be told of them. The requirement that interviews are recorded so that the suspect or their legal representatives can listen to uh, or view the recordings later on. And if relevant, the right to an interpreter and translator and for foreign nationals, their right to communicate with their High Commission embassy or consulate. The right to be informed about the offence and any further offences for which they are arrested whilst in custody and why they have been arrested and detained. This will include the circumstances and reason for their arrest. And finally, all of the suspect's rights must be given to the suspect in a written notice, including for how long they can be detained. I'm going to mention some further rights as we go through this, but I want to move for a moment to time limits, because if detention is authorised, how long can a suspect be detained without charge? Well, so far as time limits are concerned, a suspect who is under arrest can be held without charge for 24 hours. Uh, that's the initial period of time. But then they can be held for a further 12 hours, up to a maximum, therefore, of 36 hours in total, where further detention is authorised by a police superintendent or a officer of a higher rank than that who has reasonable grounds to believe, firstly, that their continued detention is necessary to secure or preserve evidence relating to the offence they're under arrest for or to obtain such evidence by questioning them, i.e. the same reasons available to the custody officer for authorising the initial detention. Secondly, that the offence they are under arrest for is an indictable offence. We looked briefly at these earlier and we'll do so again in later episodes, but they're in general offences which are of a sufficiently serious nature to be able to be tried before a jury in the Crown Court. The offence of causing wounding with intent, which Aidan, Bianca and Connor are under arrest for, is an indictable offence. And thirdly, that the investigation is being conducted diligently and expeditiously. The last of these means that the suspect can't and should not be held over the 24-hour mark simply because the police have failed to get round to questioning them in the first 24 hours. The time limit runs from what is known as the relevant time, which for a suspect under arrest is the time when the suspect arrives at the police station or 24 hours after the time of arrest, whichever is earlier. So in the case of Aidan, Bianca and Connor, if we assume that they arrive at the police station at 2am on Saturday morning following an arrest at 1.30am, their initial 24-hour detention without charge period starts at 2am on Saturday and expires at 2am on Sunday, or if extended by a superintendent for a further 12 hours at 2pm on Sunday. Detention can be extended further, but only on an application being made to a magistrate's court, and that's known as a warrant of further detention. And it requires a police constable to satisfy a magistrate's court on oath that further detention is necessary on the same grounds as were required by a superintendent to extend detention for that extra 12 hours. The suspect is entitled to attend and be represented at any such hearing, and that can be conducted over a video link. The maximum period the magistrates can extend detention without charge for is an additional 36 hours. So this takes it now up to 72 hours in total if we include the first 36-hour period. There can be one further extension of a warrant of further detention if the magistrates are satisfied that there are reasonable grounds for believing that even further detention is justified. And this can be for a maximum of 36 hours but may well be for less because the total time a suspect can remain in custody without charge is pegged at 96 hours, or four days and four nights. If this was to happen to Aidan, Bianca and Connor, it would mean that after arriving at the police station at 2am on Saturday morning, they could be kept without charge until 2am on Wednesday morning. Bear in mind, however, that this would be extremely unusual and extremely unlikely in their particular circumstances. Let's go back to the police station, because by now, the custody clock is ticking, and Aidan, Bianca and Connor 
have had their detention authorised. They're asked if they'd like legal advice, they all do, and whether they want someone informed of their detention, they all do. They then sign their custody records to confirm these decisions. After this, they provide fingerprints and are examined for any marks, features or injuries that would tend to identify them as the person involved in the offence. DNA swabs are taken from them for later analysis if required. These procedures are not covered by Code C, but by PACE Code D, which is the code of practice for the identification of persons by police officers. And it also governs, in appropriate circumstances, the conduct of identification parades. Following their arrest, they were searched under Section 32 of PACE and are searched again at the police station under Section 54. Nothing of any obvious significance is obtained from them, it's worth bearing in mind their phones are taken from them, which can be analysed for further evidence. What of other rights at the police station? It's important to mention, although this doesn't apply to our suspects, since they're all in their early 20s, that if a suspect is under 18, the custody officer must, if practicable, find out who is responsible for their welfare, such as their parent or guardian or person appointed, for example, if they are in local authority care and must inform that person of the arrest, the reason for the arrest, and where they are being held. Under-18s, referred to in Code C as juveniles and people who are judged to be vulnerable, are also entitled to the assistance of what is known as an appropriate adult. The appropriate adult's role is to safeguard the suspect's rights and welfare, to provide support, to provide advice and assistance, to observe whether the police are acting properly and fairly, to assist them to communicate, or assist the suspect to communicate with the police if they choose to do so. An appropriate adult is very different to a legal advisor, and just because a person has an appropriate adult does not deprive them of the right to legal advice. An appropriate adult for a juvenile might be their parent or guardian, provided they're not estranged, or if they're in the care of a local authority or a voluntary organisation, a person representing that authority or organisation. A social worker could also act as an appropriate adult, or failing these, some other responsible adult who, who isn't a police officer and also who isn't otherwise employed by the police. For a vulnerable person, the appropriate adult can be a relative, a guardian or other person responsible for their care, someone experienced in dealing with vulnerable people, or failing these, a responsible adult, provided again that that person isn't a police officer or otherwise employed by the police. So I want to move on to a different subject. That's the subject of legal advice. Moving back to Aidan, Bianca and Connor, as we know, all have confirmed that they want free legal advice, and that's where I want to focus for a moment. Before I do, each of them has also given the names of those that they want informed of their arrest. This doesn't entitle them to a visit, but bear in mind, PACE Code C, to be specific, paragraph 5.4, does allow them, at the custody officer's discretion, to receive visits from friends, family or others likely to take an interest in their welfare. It's a discretion that's probably unlikely to be exercised in their favour at this point in time. Code C, paragraph 5.6, also allows a suspect the right to make a telephone call to one person for a reasonable time, but this can be delayed or even denied if an inspector or a higher-ranking officer considers for a person detained for an indictable offence, that it might result in interference with evidence, interference with or harm to others, alerting other suspects, or hindering the recovery of property. These are the same conditions for delaying access to legal advice or to deny access to a specific solicitor, except that in these latter situations, the decision would have to be made on reasonable grounds by a superintendent or an officer of even higher rank. So, to legal advice. Legal advice is provided free, and a suspect is entitled to a free consultation with their legal representative before an interview takes place. When a request to see a solicitor is made, the custody officer must act without delay to secure it. If a suspect doesn't wish to actually see a solicitor, then access can be arranged by telephone instead. Bear in mind that for 
less serious matters for non-imprisonable offences, for failing to appear and also for being in breach of bail and also for drink driving, most suspects will be limited to legal advice via telephone from the Criminal Defence Service. But for others, it's more extensive and it's a consultation that must take place in private. I just want to focus on privacy for a moment because you'd think that the police would always respect that a consultation between a solicitor and their client is a private and confidential matter, such discussions being covered by legal professional privilege. But there have been instances where this has been far from respected. I want to tell you about a case. It's the case of Edward Grant, which was in the Court of Appeal in 2005, and I've provided a link to this case in the notes. The facts were these. Edward Grant had been convicted by a jury of conspiring to murder his wife's lover and was sentenced to 18 years in prison. His wife had left their home in October 2000, taking the three children of the family with her. She rented a house in Grantham, Lincolnshire, and Mr Dowling, her lover, soon to be deceased, moved in with her. On the evening of the 15th of March 2001, Mr Dowling answered a knock at the door, at which point he was confronted by an unknown gunman who shot him in the chest and thigh. He was pronounced dead later that same night. Edward Grant had pursued an application at trial that the case should not continue because it constituted an abusive process due to the fact that the police had been listening to solicitor-client conversations by placing a listening device in the exercise yard at Sleaford Police Station. We'll be looking at abusive process applications in another episode, but for now it's simply worth mentioning that an abusive process application, if successful, stops a case in its tracks. Of interest in this case were the remarks of the Lord Chief Justice who said, and I've slightly shortened this part of the judgment and added some minor parts for explanatory purposes, but I quote, This case is in fact one of three in which the Lincolnshire Police placed covert listening devices in the exercise yard of Sleaford Police Station. They did so in the course of three major investigations between November 2000 and November 2001. The first in time was Operation Wheel, then Operation Mink, this case, and finally Operation Galaxy. In Operation Wheel, covert devices were also installed at Grantham Police Station. In each case, privileged communications between the detained suspects, later to become the defendants and their legal advisers, were intercepted and recorded. In each case, there was an application to the trial judge to stay the proceedings as abusive. In the case of Sutherland, Newman Jay at the Nottingham Crown Court acceded to the abuse application in a very detailed ruling. That took place before the ruling of Astle Jay in these proceedings on the 23rd of May 2003. In the case of sentence, His Honour Judge Heath at the Lincoln Crown Court also acceded to the abuse application made to him and again gave a very fully reasoned decision on the 1st of April 2004. The quote goes on. Newman J and His Honour Judge Heath, after hearing live evidence, called on a voir dire just as was led before Astle J in the present case, each concluded that the covert devices had been placed with the deliberate intention of capturing communications between the detained person and their solicitors. Astle J held to the contrary effect in relation to Operation Mink in the present case, and that conclusion is the subject of complaint in ground one of this appeal. Moreover, Newman J appears to have been of the view, and his honour Judge Heath was certainly of the view, that it was not necessary to prove any prejudice as such to the defendant in order to conclude that the proceedings were tainted by misconduct constituted by a deliberate eavesdropping upon privileged communications and in consequence should be stopped as abusive. Again, Astle J in the present case was of a contrary opinion. That conclusion is the subject of the complaint in ground three of the grounds of appeal. That's the end of this particular quote. So there we have it, deliberate eavesdropping. And in this case, uh, in this case of Grant, the appellant succeeded in having his conviction quashed, the Court of Appeal ruling that, and I quote again, acts done by the police in the course of an investigation which leads in due course to the institution of criminal proceedings 
with a view to eavesdropping upon communications of suspected persons which are subject to legal professional privilege are categorically unlawful and at the very least capable of infecting the proceedings as abusive of the court's process. So much seems to us to be plain and obvious and no authority is needed to make it good. End of quote. Even though no evidence obtained had been used to prosecute the appellant, the court ruled that the appeal should still succeed. I quote again, Where the court is faced with illegal conduct by police or state prosecutors, which is so grave as to threaten or undermine the rule of law itself, the court may readily conclude that it will not tolerate, far less endorse, such a state of affairs and so hold that its duty is to stop the case. We are quite clear that the deliberate interference with a detained suspect's right to the confidence of privileged communications with his solicitor, such as we found was done here, seriously undermines the rule of law and justifies a stay on grounds of abusive process, notwithstanding the absence of prejudice consisting in evidence gathered by the Crown as fruit of police officers' unlawful conduct. End of quote. We can at the very least draw from this that the right of a solicitor to speak in private with his or her own client is a vital aspect of the rights of a suspect at a police station. While I'm on the subject of legal advice, a point worth noting is that Code C Note 6ZA provides that the police must not indicate to a suspect, except to a direct question on this point, that they'll be out of the police station more quickly if they don't ask for legal advice or if they don't want a solicitor present when they're interviewed, including if they've asked for legal advice but changed their mind and agree to be interviewed without a solicitor. The point is here that the right to legal advice is fundamental and no attempt should be made to undermine it. So what then is the role of the solicitor at the police station? PACE Code C Note 6D describes it in this way, and I quote, The solicitor's only role in the police station is to protect and advance the legal rights of their client. On occasions, this may require the solicitor to give advice which has the effect of the client avoiding giving evidence which strengthens a prosecution case. The solicitor may intervene in order to seek clarification, challenge an improper question to the client, or the manner in which it is put, advise their client not to reply to particular questions or, if they wish, to give their client further legal advice. Paragraph 6.9, which concerns the police requiring a solicitor to leave the interview, only applies if the solicitor's approach or conduct prevents or unreasonably obstructs proper questions being put to the suspect or the suspect's response being recorded. Examples of unacceptable conduct include answering questions on a suspect's behalf or providing written replies for the suspect to quote. And that's the end of this quote from PACE Code C. So that's what Code C says. But to further explain these points, let me give some examples of why a solicitor or accredited police station representative working for a solicitor can be very important to a suspect in a number of ways. In straightforward and fundamental terms, they can advise on whether or not to answer police questions, to ensure that PACE codes of practice are being complied with, that a suspect is not being bullied or unfairly taken advantage of, and that they're being treated appropriately. That's at least what should happen. A good example, exceptional as it is, of where this didn't take place was in the case of the Cardiff Five, all of whom were subsequently charged and three of whom were convicted of a brutal murder where one suspect, Stephen Miller, who was 22 years of age with a mental age of 11, he was interviewed for 13 hours over five days and then cracked under the relentless pressure placed on him. The Lord Chief Justice said in the appeal that short of physical abuse, it was hard to conceive of a more hostile and intimidating approach by officers to a suspect. The legal representative was present throughout all but the first two of these interviews but failed to intervene uh, really makes this dreadful story all the more extraordinary. You can listen to a really good podcast, actually, on the Cardiff Five. Uh, it's called Shreds, Murder in the Dock, and it's on BBC Sounds, or you can watch the BBC documentary A Killing in Tiger Bay on iPlayer. Both excellent. So 
that was a case where things went horribly wrong. But for the most part, a solicitor will and is expected to stand up for your rights and act in your interests, not, of course, the interests of the police. The police can find it very irritating when a suspect refuses to answer questions or simply answers no comment to all questions put. But that is the nature of our system of criminal justice, that the prosecution bring the case and must prove it beyond reasonable doubt. It's not for the person accused to help the prosecution prove its case or to do anything which might incriminate them. That system, which represents the law of the land, starts from the moment of arrest and continues through to the end of trial when the verdict is reached. The risk of advising a client to remain silent is that it can result in what's known as an adverse inference being drawn against them at trial, but more of that in a moment. First of all, why might a solicitor advise a person to make no comment at the police station during the police interview? Well, the reality is there could be a number of reasons why. It could be because they actually accept that they're guilty, but on the face of the evidence which the police have, the legal adviser may take the view there's insufficient evidence to prove the offence in court. It may be, for example, because, let's say, it's a case based on identification evidence. The quality of that identification evidence is poor, or in another case, because the person making the accusation is less than trustworthy, or perhaps just very unlikely to attend court to give evidence. It could be because the suspect is in a state of confusion or the legal representative feels they are particularly vulnerable or suffer from a mental disorder, which, in the context of an interview, means they're liable to do themselves more harm than good. It may be because the evidence relied upon by the police is something which the legal representative considers is capable of being challenged at a pretrial hearing, with a view to having it ruled as inadmissible evidence, i.e. it can't be used in court to support a prosecution. If the suspect were to admit the offence without testing its admissibility, then there would be a case against them whether or not the evidence was subsequently ruled inadmissible, whereas remaining silent would mean the case would come to an end. One, I think, quite good example of this is EncroChat, where uh, French law enforcement compromised a previously secure and encrypted phone network in early 2020, which allowed for large volumes of material to be extracted and used in subsequent prosecutions, uh, many for the supply of Class A drugs. In the courts in England and Wales, there's been much legal argument and a number of appeals based on whether EncroChat evidence was intercept material, and if so, it was argued, it wasn't admissible in court. So far, these appeals have been unsuccessful, but given the nature of the situation as it was, it's understandable from the perspective of a client fully advised by their solicitor and faced with what appeared to be overwhelming evidence why opting to remain silent seemed at that stage like the best approach. If you're interested, in fact, in learning more about EncroChat, really good podcast. Again, on BBC Sounds, it's called, it's a part of the Gangster series and it's called Catching the Kingpins. Before you ask, I can promise I'm not on commission for any of these recommendations. I guess in the interest of total transparency, I should say that the only personal interest I have in any recommendation on this podcast is the defencebarrister.co.uk website fully spelt out defence-barrister.co.uk and that provides further reading and greater depth to many of those areas I cover here. But a move on. Uh, let's move on to another reason for perhaps advising a client to remain silent. It might be that a legal representative advises a suspect not to answer questions where they think that the disclosure given by the police has been insufficient. A solicitor will look in detail at the custody record and will seek as much information as they can about the case from the police, the circumstances of the offence, uh, as much information as they can get. As was mentioned, in fact, in a case called Nuttall in 2024, and I quote, the purpose of the pre-interview disclosure derives from the realisation by the police that without proper disclosure, solicitors cannot properly advise their clients. They voluntarily provide disclosure in order to counter an argument at trial that no adverse inferences should be drawn from the suspect's failure to answer questions. The quality and quantity of disclosure will depend on the case. 
the officer must assess the risk of giving inadequate disclosure, namely that no adverse inferences will be drawn, end of quote. We'll look at the adverse inference in a moment. If a solicitor takes the view that the interview is being conducted as an ambush with inadequate revelation of information such that they're unable to provide meaningful legal advice to their client, then that may amount to a good reason for advising a client to remain silent as well as a good reason to avoid an adverse inference. Obtaining satisfactory disclosure is therefore just one reason why good pre-interview legal representation is really important and can be really helpful. Before I finish on this subject, let's just think about another reason. Another reason why a suspect might wish to make no comment in a police interview can be explained, I think, by real life and the complications of real life. And, as we'll find out, this is something that happens in the case of Aidan, Bianca and Connor. It comes down to the same reason that someone who's actually innocent might lie. A suspect may not wish to give an honest account, because by doing so it might implicate a friend or a relative, or, quite the opposite, it might implicate someone that they are actually really scared of, and they might be, say, petrified of them, and so petrified of the consequences, they're not going to say anything. The fact that they are protecting someone, friend or foe, may lead them to decide it's better to face the music themselves than be seen by others as a gross. Another reason is that giving a full account might implicate them in another criminal offence, such as meeting someone at a certain place at a certain time to buy or sell drugs. Or a true account might reveal to a loved one that they were with someone they shouldn't have been, such as someone they're having an affair with. Just a few more reasons why things are not always as they seem. If a trial takes place and then the people I've just described come clean in due course, a jury are going to have to grapple with the lie. Was there an innocent explanation for it, or was the lie no more than an attempt to divert the police from the truth, which, the prosecution will say, is that they are guilty as charged? These aren't exhaustive reasons why a person might make no comment to police questions in an interview, since there might be other explanations, of course. One of which is, of course, that they are guilty of the offence and they haven't yet worked out what to say to get themselves out of it. And if they give evidence at trial and are cross-examined by the prosecution, you can pretty much guarantee that that is likely to be the line that the prosecution will take against them. Whatever your views about the rights and wrongs of the right to remain silent, it's worth bearing in mind that people do falsely confess to crimes they haven't committed. Obvious examples are Timothy Evans, who falsely confessed to murdering his wife and was hanged for it, and Stephen Miller, who I mentioned moments ago in the Cardiff Five case, who falsely confessed to and falsely implicated others in a murder in Butte Town, Cardiff, for which he was subsequently cleared on appeal, as were those he implicated. There are, of course, multiple other excellent examples. As for whether people plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit, perhaps we need go no further for the answer than by looking at the post office scandal and the multiple sub-postmasters and other staff who took a deal to plead guilty to what they perceived as a lesser offence in order to lessen their risk of a prison sentence, a situation which many have described as the most widespread miscarriage of justice in British legal history. So, when considering the role of a solicitor advising a client at the police station, it demonstrates this. The decision on whether to answer questions can be a complex process, and legal representatives, I think it's fair to say, can have their hands full. Let's move on to the second part of this, because I've mentioned this concept of the adverse inference. The decision to refuse to answer questions can have the consequence of a risk of an adverse inference being drawn against them at trial, i.e. it could be held against them and used to support the prosecution case. To explain this, Reference to this adverse inference is contained in the caution, which must be given both after arrest and at the beginning of each police interview in these terms. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned 
something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. The relevant part here, of course, is it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. And this comes from Section 34 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 2004. Section 34 provides that when a suspect is interviewed under caution, an adverse inference can be drawn at their subsequent trial if they fail to mention facts when questioned which they could reasonably have been expected to mention and which they later relied upon in their defence at trial. Let me give you an example, slightly different from Aidan, Bianca and Connor. Let's just imagine you are charged with burglary. The evidence is that you are seen by two people who subsequently pick you out on an identification parade. They see you climbing in through the window and leaving from the same window of a house with a laptop. In your police interview under caution, you're asked if you were the person breaking in and leaving with a laptop in your hands. You're told that it's your opportunity, if it wasn't you, to explain where you were at the time and who, if anyone, you were with. You're asked what happened to the laptop. Did you have any legitimate reason to take it? You're asked if any fingerprints or blood or DNA found at the scene would be yours, and if so, how would you account for that? Uh, And you would be asked if you had ever been to that house before, and did you have any legitimate reason for going there on this occasion? And in response to all of those questions, you make no comment. If at trial you gave evidence that it wasn't you, that you were with, for example, your good friend Jason and you called Jason as an alibi witness to support you, then the jury in the Crown Court or the district judge or magistrates in the magistrates' court uh, will almost certainly be entitled to draw an adverse inference against you, but only if they choose to do so. That's the important thing to remember. They don't have to but they would be entitled to do so. And even if they do, this couldn't be used as the only or main reason for finding you guilty. In the scenario I've just placed before you, the prosecution, when cross-examining you, would doubtless put to you that you refused to answer questions because you hadn't yet worked out your story. You might counter that you acted on legal advice. And the prosecution might counter in turn that even if that were the case, your defence could not be simpler and you refused nonetheless to explain it. It'll be for the jury, the district judge or magistrates, to decide if relying on legal advice in the circumstances, even if that were true, was reasonable in those circumstances. The fact is that you failed to mention something which you could reasonably have been expected to mention, which you later relied on in court, therefore there can be an adverse inference. The jury might, of course, think, hold on, you relying on legal advice was perfectly appropriate and they're not going to hold that against you. It's worth actually bearing in mind, I think, that even without the concept of an adverse inference, many people in the jury must think, well, hold on, if you're accused of a criminal offence, surely you would normally respond. And really, how to deal with that is very much the skill of the advocate, certainly in my view. Anyway, to turn this around, imagine in the same scenario that you do not give evidence at court and don't call any witnesses. All your legal representative does is test the reliability of the identification evidence and suggest from this that the prosecution evidence is insufficient to prove it was you. In this situation, you've not failed to mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Instead, all you've done is to test the strength of the prosecution evidence and question whether the prosecution have proved their case beyond reasonable doubt. For that reason, no adverse inference can be drawn against you for your unresponsive interview. If that sounds too good to be true, well, to this extent it is, because unfortunately for you, as we'll see later on, an adverse inference could be drawn under Section 35 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act from your failure to give evidence at trial. But we'll get to that when we get to trial later on. If that weren't enough, adverse inferences can also be drawn under Section 36 of the 2004 Act for a suspect failing to account for objects, substances or marks found on them following arrest, which are believed to show that they were involved in that offence, and under Section 37 of the same Act for failing following arrest to account 
for their presence at a particular place at or about the time of the offence, a presence which is believed to show their involvement. What about countering the adverse inference for staying silent or simply answering no comment, both of which amount to the same thing at interview? Well, if you were denied your right to legal advice before the interview took place, even if that was lawfully delayed in the circumstances, an adverse inference simply cannot be drawn. A more common situation which may prevent an adverse inference being drawn is the use of the prepared statement in an interview. This is where the suspect provides a written statement to the police at the beginning of their interview, which is read out by their solicitor, setting out their defence, usually in broad terms, but in the hope of providing enough information to counter an adverse inference being drawn at trial. So in the burglary case, for example, it could be, I was not the person seen entering the house or removing a laptop. I have been mistakenly identified. I cannot recall and cannot reasonably be expected now to recall where I was on this date at this time. The house is unknown to me. I am not responsible for this offence. And then the suspect would go on and answer no comment to any individual questions asked of them by the police. Whether or not an adverse inference can be drawn a later trial really depends on whether the defence rely on something which goes further than the widely drawn facts of the defence set out in that prepared statement. Let's go back to the case involving Aidan, Bianca and Connor, because in their case, by late Saturday morning, when all three are still in their cells, the police have made some progress in gathering evidence, although there's still some way to go. What they do have are statements from nightclub security saying perfectly truthfully that they saw pushing and shoving by two white males on the dance floor, one with dark hair and a pink shirt fitting the description of Aidan, and another with bright blonde hair and dark clothing fitting the description of Daniel Clark. And they ejected them both. Shortly afterwards, they looked out to see what they described as a full-scale brawl occurring. As they watched, they saw the same dark-haired male with a pink shirt run off at speed, followed by a girl described only as white, slim, wearing a green top and with long, dark hair, a description that fits with Bianca. And another shorter male described only as black, short hair, white T-shirt and stocky build, another description, broad as it is, that fits with Connor. After that, they lost sight of them. When they crossed over to see the blonde man, they couldn't believe the state his face was in. They immediately called 999 for police and ambulance. They spoke to the other two males with the blonde man, who told them that Pink Shirt Man had done it with a broken bottle. They passed this information to the police. The police have been unable to take a statement from the injured Daniel Clark. But they know from inquiries that he underwent emergency surgery to multiple deep lacerations to his face, typical of injuries caused by a broken bottle. He's still recovering in hospital. Will be, in fact, for some time, and he's under heavy medication. Taking a full statement from him, they're told, will have to wait. Daniel's friends, Ethan and Finn, have both been spoken to by police. They both provided statements later on Saturday morning. In summary, both point the finger at Aidan, the man in the pink shirt, saying he started pushing Daniel on the dance floor. The bouncers then got the wrong idea, so they threw both out. They, Ethan and Finn, followed only to see pink shirt man going for Daniel, backed up by his two mates, a girl and a shorter man, who were egging him on and shouting threats, including that they were going to kill Daniel and, said Finn, cut him up. All of a sudden, they heard the sound of a bottle smashing and out of nowhere, it was pushed straight into Daniel's face, cutting his face into pieces. There was blood everywhere. Ethan said it was Pink Shirt Man that did it and Finn that Pink Shirt Man must have done it. His mates were laughing and cheering. Then they just legged it. Ethan chased for a while instinctively, he said, but then returned where Finn was with Daniel who lay unmoving and bleeding so heavily that he thought he was dead. When the solicitors arrive at the police station to represent Aidan, Bianca and Connor, the police are generous with disclosure and give them a summary in line with what I've just mentioned, including a reference to the group of three being followed, running from the scene on CCTV and being stopped and arrested shortly afterwards by the police on suspicion of wounding with intent, an offence contrary to Section 18 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861. 
As if Aidan, Bianca and Connor didn't have enough to worry about, they did soon afterwards when the Section 18 offence was explained to them. In terms of non-sexual physical assault cases, a Section 18 was close to the top. Sitting below murder, of course, and little below attempted murder, but way above everything else. When they asked, as they all did, what the maximum sentence for a Section 18 was, they all received the same answer. Life imprisonment. It's now time for Aidan, Bianca and Connor to face the police in interview and then for a CPS decision to be made about whether any one or all of them should be charged, released on bail, released under investigation or simply released with no further action to be taken against them. From there, we'll be heading towards the first appearance for one or more of these defendants into the courtroom the continuation of the process that will take them ever closer to trial. All of that will follow in episode two. Until then, thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please like, subscribe and press any button with love hearts and smiley faces. And I'll see you all again very soon.